This Advent season we will begin a series that we are titling simply The Incarnation. And our message this morning is focused on His identity. I invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 1 as I take us to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we gather to offer to you praise and to think of the gift that you've given to us of Christ, Lord, we pray now that having given us the word incarnated, you would open our ears and our hearts and our eyes that we may see and receive that word as it is declared. Father, may we see Christ. And in him may we see our life, our hope, and your promise. Open us that we may be blessed, that we may bless you and those around us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Almost every fairy tale begins with the words, once upon a time. But the story of Jesus Christ begins with a genealogy. The reason for this may be in part because with a fairy tale, it doesn't matter when the story took place or even if the story took place, as long as the hearer benefits from the point of the story. And yet, with Christianity, there are no benefits of the story apart from the inseparable link to the story itself with verifiable datable historical events and personal histories. Now, if you're someone who is familiar with any of the stories of the people that are listed here in the passage that we're going to consider this morning, you may well be tempted to think, what good could possibly come from people like this? But as we will see, the answer is found in verse 16 of our text this morning. The one who gives all meaning verse 16 declares to us of whom Jesus was born, he who is called the Christ. Let's look to God's word this morning in Matthew chapter 1, beginning our reading in verse 1, continuing through verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, 
and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Iliad, father in, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to, to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations the word of the Lord given to us. Though unusual, simply a roster full of names, nevertheless given for our blessing, our understanding, and our good. Now as we look at this simple list of names, if you were able to stick with it and not fall asleep during the reading of this phone book, as it seems, one of the things that's important that we recognize is in this list, we see a mi microcosm of humanity, a microcosm of all of human history. Because recorded in this list, we see included the names of those who were great and those who were nothing. We see the names of those who were significant and who were insignificant, powerful and powerless. We see the name of heroes the names of cowards. We see the names of a virgin, as well as the name of prostitutes. You name the vices and the characteristics, they are all included in the characters and the stories of the people that are found in this list. The stories themselves are amazing, and during this holiday season, worth going through this list and looking up and studying and thinking and contemplating. Some of them are quite detailed. Some of, some of them are quite exciting. Many of them are quite exasperating. But regardless of who they are and whatever their story, whatever their lives brought or lacked, all of these stories are ultimately and essentially meaningless, apart from verse 16. In verse 16, that one little phrase, of whom Jesus was born, that phrase makes sense and gives meaning to the lives of everyone in Jesus' family tree. It gives the meaning and makes sense of all of the brokenness that is found there. Because out of that brokenness, through all of their shame and their sin, God in his infinite mercy brought forth his son who took on all of the brokenness. and makes all things new. And has promised to make all things right. 
This morning what I want to do is to look through that brokenness to the one who was promised, to the one who is the hope, not only of them, but of us and to the nations, and to recognize God's gift and what that means for us, who are here, who may be waiting and wondering and watching for God to make sense of our own lives. But the only way that we are able to make sense and the only way that we are able to find the meaning of our own lives is by recognizing the identity of the one of whom Matthew is writing. And in this short list, we see a number of different ways that we should see Jesus Christ. Obviously, the emphasis of Matthew in part here is on the fact that he is the Christ, because we see as the beginning, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and at the end, of the one who is called Christ. Christ meaning the one who is anointed, the promised Messiah who would come, pointing to the one who is of ultimate importance in all of history. Yet as important as that is, I will find that it's kind of wrapped up in two distinct identities that we find that Matthew lists here at the very beginning in verse 1. This morning we consider what it means that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. As the son of David, we are told that Jesus is the expected king. We look through this list, we find that Jesus is a descendant of royal lineage. Because in this list, we see the names of some of the great kings of Israel. Not only David, but his son Solomon. And we see Jehoshaphat and Josiah and Hezekiah. All of the godly kings of Israel are in the line of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a descendant of every one of the godly kings of Israel. It's impressive in its own right. But Matthew makes special emphasis on one of those kings, one person from whom Jesus descended, and that is David, because he's identified here as the son of David. In fact, something that is lost, at least in our English translations, is the entire genealogy is wrapped around the identity of David, pointing to the fact that Jesus is the, is the promised son of David. See, what we don't have in our English translations is that this actually is an acrostic. You will see here in the list, and even it's summarized in verse 17, saying that there are 14 generations and 14 generations. So we have here are three lists with 14 names each. Now, it's not an exhaustive list, so some people go back and they're critical of what this list includes because they, they realize so-and-so was not the actual biological father, but was the grandfather or the descendant. And in Hebrew history, that's not really important. Most of the genealogies, not only in the Bible, but of antiquity, will skip generations. They're just trying to give you the idea, the significance, and, and create an understanding of what's being tried to communicate through the line that is here. And so here, there are some generations that are skipped, which is how we have the 14 in each. But the 14 is not accidental. 14 is actually referring to David because in the Hebrew language, and I won't go into great detail for this, in Hebrew language, there are, you're able to assign a numerical value to the letters and then the total of the letters to the total numerical value. The short way of understanding this is 
In Hebrew, David's name, the numerical value of David's name is 14. And so here there are 14, 14, 14 listed. And then each time, if you were reading this in Hebrew, it is an acrostic of the name of David. So again, while I don't expect most of you to go out and go buy in your Hebrew Bibles and to check this out, just suffice it to say that what Matthew is declaring here in this list and the way that he wrote it is that David is very significant and that being the son of David carries a significant amount of weight. It was written in one way as a mnemonic device, as a way for Hebrews to remember the genealogy of Jesus. But more important, it was written as a declaration of hope. Because the people that were living in the day that Matthew was writing were longing for the promised king who would come and make all things right and to make all things new. And that promise was made to David. And the promise was made to God's people that the king would come in the line of David. 2 Samuel tells us the characteristic of this, and Samuel, uh, of this king. 2 Samuel 7 tells us this. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. My love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So as God is speaking and making promise to David, and through David, a promise to all of his people, there's a declaration from God that there would be one, a son of David, who would come and who would lead. He would reign, and he would reign forever. And God's with presence would be always with him and never taken away. Not only God's presence, but God's love would always be with him and would be given through him. And so when Matthew here declares at the very outset that Jesus is the promised, the son of David, it carries great significance. It gives reason for great hope and expectation and excitement because David is the promised king, the one that everybody has been waiting for. All of the things in life that are hard and horrible and that stink, this king is now here, and he's going to make it right. He's going to make these things new. Jesus, as the son of David, is the expected king. Jesus, as the son of Solomon, or as the son of Abraham, we are told is also the savior of sinners. Abraham was the one to whom God entered into a covenant. And Abraham was the one to whom God made a promise. I will bless you, and I will make you great. And I will bless the nations through you. The Gospel of Matthew has that in mind. As Matthew is writing, he begins this account of the life of Jesus with the promise of Abraham in mind, and he ends his book with the promise of Abraham in mind. Because Matthew declaring at the very beginning that Jesus, this is his genealogy, the genealogy of the one who is the son of Abraham, 
saying he is the promised one to Abraham through whom all of the nations, all of the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And at the end of this book, as many of you are aware, we see this Jesus who himself has come to be the blessing to the nations, commissioning his disciples to go and to make disciples of all of the earth, that they too, people of every tribe, in every language, every people group, would be blessed because of Christ's coming. Many of you are familiar with the story of Abraham himself. We tend to think of Abraham in elevated terms, the father of our faith, the one who was justified simply because he believed God, the one who was living in a great metropolitan, one of the greatest cities in all of antiquity, if not the greatest city, a city that was so advanced that things that we assume didn't happen back then were taking place. They were advanced in their technology. They were advanced in their medicine. It was a culture that actually was practicing surgery, even brain surgery, in ancient antiquity. It was a city that had everything. And God comes to this person who was a wealthy person in this city, the son of a wealthy person in this city, and said, go. Abraham asked, where is it that I'm to go? And God said, I'll let you know when you get there. But Abraham was willing to give up the whole world, essentially, what we would consider the world. Wealth, prosperity, comfort, living in the big city, being a bigwig in the big city. He obeyed God because he believed God. And as we are told through the scriptures, because he believed God, he was declared righteous. But Abraham himself was not all of his PR. He struggled with his own faith despite being justified by it. He, like many of us, or at least like me, felt the need to take matters into his own hands when things just didn't seem to be working out right. His intent, I guess, much like mine, just, will just help God out a little bit. And time and again, his own worry, his own anxiety being placated by his own initiative, leading to disaster that we're still reading about in the newspapers today. Abraham himself was a man who, though he was the father of the chosen people, was born into a pagan people. And yet from all of the nations of the world, God called him and said, I will make you the father of a chosen people. This man who is deeply flawed. This man who was not born into a family that knew the living and true God. And yet God said he would bless him. Abraham and the entire list here is a reminder to us that through God's promise, he would send a savior to sinners. Because the story of Abraham is a clear indication of a person who is flawed and who is in need of deliverance. And all of the descendants that are listed after him, we see some very unsavory individuals, 
and we see people that are not from the Jewish line. In other words, in this list here, descending from Abraham and coming to Christ, we see people from a variety of nations and people groups, all of whom had their own problems and their own issues, some of them considerably scandalous. And yet, it was to this line. God made the promise of bringing Jesus to the world. It was to Abraham that the promise was made that I will bless the nations. I will send my son. As we look at this list and we consider who these people are, dull as it may seem to read through a list, it is tremendous news for you and for me. because they are a microcosm of all of humanity. Because there is no sin, no struggle, no temptation that was not only not known, but not lived out by the people that are on this list. And yet, it was to them that Jesus was sent. It's a reminder to us of what the Apostle Paul later summarizes, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, like those in his own family tree. like those of us who are sitting here this morning. Matthew defines, uh, uh, helps us to understand that Jesus has an identity as the son of David, the expected king, and the son of Abraham, who is the savior of sinners, the one who was given to us that we might be set free, and the one who would reign and so that all things would be made right. So we may ask, why is this list here? This list is here to be an encouragement to you and to me. It's a reminder to us that if God could reach down and lift up people like these, people whose lives were so, so broken and so challenged, that there's not one of us who is sitting here today that God cannot reach and use. And so I want you to allow that to set in for a moment. Think about it. And to realize that whatever it is in your life today that would lead you to believe that God cannot love you, God cannot use you, you would recognize that it is a lie if he used these people. He can use you. And to take a moment to ask God to put his finger on that button in your life that the enemy can push over and over again, the one that knocks you off track, the one that seems to declare to you that, well, maybe God will forgive you, but he'll never really love you. You can't really be used. Ask God to put his finger on that button and for the Spirit of God to deal with that voice and replace it in your own heart, in your own mind, as he speaks to you of the message that is encapsulated in this list of the mercy and of the grace and of the love of God for people who are just like us, significantly challenged, who are struggling, people who are in need 
and people who were waiting for God to deliver on his promises and to send the son of Abraham and the son of David. I also want you to consider this, is that these people and the people to whom Matthew was writing, especially to the, those that, to whom Matthew was writing, by the time Matthew got around to writing his gospel, many of the people began to question the promises of God, both to Abraham and to David. Israel's own history, they had been decimated and, moved and, been, and taken into captivity, and though they had returned, they were now, at the time that Matthew was writing, still experiencing the Roman oppression and domination and abuse. People's lives were not what they were hoping for. Not what they expected. Likely asking the questions, I've committed my life to you, Lord. What's going wrong? How long will you forget your promises? How long am I supposed to just go on trusting you? realize that Matthew is writing to a people who had experienced that, that same emotion that many of us are experiencing. Where are you this morning? Where are you during this Advent season in your disappointment with God? I know many of us are hesitant to confess it, but the reality is almost all of us experience that in some way or form. And the others who claim not to be, at least I don't know that I have verifiable proof of this, I just assume you're liars. Even if you're lying to yourself. It seems somehow inappropriate to be disappointed with God. And yet God uses time to take all of us to the school of faith. Because if we have enough time, if we experience enough time goes by, there are lots of things that are going to happen in our lives to bring us disappointment. That marriage that you entered into with so much hope and expectation, perhaps even thinking of it as an answer to prayer, years of prayer, and you enter into that, and now it's not what you were expecting. The intimacy seems to be absent. The unity, non-existent habits that were once so endearing are now quite annoying. What happened? The children to whom you dedicated to the Lord sought to raise them and now not only are many of them distant but many seem to be running from God. You've been faithful with your promise. Why hasn't God been faithful with his? your future. You've worked very hard and tried to be wise with the resources that you had and somehow for many those resources seem to have simply evaporated. For others they know where the resources went because they've experienced betrayal. Someone ripped you off. So now what is it, are you going to do? You've worked hard. You've tried to be faithful. God didn't protect. 
How long are we to wait? How long are we to trust? These are not insignificant questions. These are not inappropriate questions. This is real life. But it's to people who ask those questions that Matthew is writing and saying, not only you who may tend to blame yourself for your own failings, thinking that you cannot be loved and cannot be used, not only are you looking to the son of Abraham who is the savior of sinners, who brings forgiveness, restoration, and the demonstration, the overflowing of God's grace and love to you, but we look to the son of David as well, who is the promised king, who will make all things new, who will make all things right. But just as these people were being written to in the advent of their own lives, in a time of waiting, we also, during this season, are reminded that our life is an advent as well, because we wait. But unlike the people who are waiting in the silence of God, in the absence of God, for hundreds of years, we are a people who have the benefit resting on the foundation of the first advent, the historical, verifiable birth, life, death, and resurrection of God's promise when the king came to whom Matthew is testifying. And so we do wait. We wait as people with an expectation built on the foundation of both promise and realization that God who sent his son into the world as the deposit, as the inauguration of his kingdom. Nevertheless, all things are not finished yet. With that hope of the promise and what has already happened that we celebrate this season, we also look to that which is to come. We wait. We watch. And we may wonder. But we wonder we believe, resting on the promise of the one who was revealed to be the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Christ that God has promised. Father, we come as your people who are in need. We come as your people who are at times confused. We come as your people who often fail and feel frail. We come to you, Lord, with great expectation. But we do not come with presumption. For though you are the great God who has created all things, who is holy beyond our comprehension or even imagination, it is you who has invited us into your presence. It is you who has made a way for us to come through sending your son who is called Christ, who has given himself to pay our debts. Who died and rose again to give us hope. Father, turn our attention to him. And the troubles that we are experiencing, the difficulties that we endure, 
may we see them through him. May we know that you are true to your word, that you are at work, that what you have made, you will make again, and that our hope is not in vain. Father, replace our anxiety with faith, not in a fairy tale, but in the fact of Christ born, Christ died, Christ resurrected, Christ ascended, and Christ who will return. May we praise you for what you have done and for what you will do. We pray in Jesus, our hope, our King, our salvation.